As you're being seated, let me invite you to thank you, Chris. Thank, thank you for the music. Um, um, Allison, Walter, so good. Um, your Bible's open to Revelation chapter, Revelation chapter 14. We had looked at, there's two passages that deal with 144,000 witnesses. There's, there's Revelation 7 and there's Revelation 14. So we had looked at a little bit at this the idea of these witnesses, and, and we think about God's call. I'm not going to go back over the sermon, but God's call for us to be His witnesses. He says that in Acts 1.8. He says that in the Great Commission. And uh, we know that a witness shares what they've seen, what they've heard, and what they've experienced. And you and I are supposed to be witnesses of the grace of God to lost people. That's why we're here. Uh, we're aliens and strangers. I mentioned that earlier in... We're citizens of God's kingdom, and we need to be sharing the good news to those that are not, and the those that walk in darkness. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby men must be saved. There's no other way of salvation. And we're talking Sunday school. You know, um, you're saved. And y'all know this. I mean, you're saved by faith alone. We know Ephesians two, the book of Romans. 3, Romans 6, Romans chapter 8, we're saved by faith in Christ alone. So there's this little saying we say, is, is that saving, you're saved by faith alone, right? By faith alone are we saved. But saving faith is not alone. It works, right? By faith alone are we saved. But that saving faith is not alone. Because Christ has transformed our lives. Yes, I mean, salvation does save us from the pit of hell, from judgment, God's wrath. But salvation also transforms the heart. We, we need to remember that. Uh, you know, how would you describe what it means to be saved? You know, if you were to write down a definition, and part of that is it has to be the transformation of the soul. And, and these people, these witnesses that God personally saves and calls, these Jewish witnesses, are going to be witnesses during the whole seven years of the tribulation. We know that because they appear right after the, the, the trumpet, ju- I mean, the seal judgments. They're in Revelation chapter 7. Then they're appearing here in Revelation chapter 14, which are right before the bowl judgments, which fall at the end of the tribulation. So your Bible's open, if you don't mind, back to Revelation 14. And uh, I'm going to read that passage again. I'm not going to say but one or two things about it because we want to move on because there's so many rich things about prophecy that are, in this, that are within uh, Revelation 14. Then I looked and, and behold, on Mount Zion, another term for Jerusalem, uh, stood the Lamb. I love that. Remember it says earlier in Revelation, a lamb as if it had been slain. But now that lamb is standing. Uh, he stood, stood a lamb and, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpist playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures. 
and before the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Now let me stop right there. There's a couple of points. I just want to make mention of this. And I ended last Sunday morning, I believe, saying things like, so what did these witnesses do? They were purity in a sea of filth, truth in a world of lies, hope in a land of doom, compassion in the midst of judgment, understanding in a time of holy wrath. And, but that's what we are as well. We're witnesses and we're sharing with a world that's you know, on a path to hell. We're providing them hope. We have words of hope. We're living pure lives in a world of filth. Um, we have truth in the midst of nothing but lies. And, and um, there is a, it is amazing how much untruth is out there. Am I right? Amen? And, uh, but we have the truth. We know the truth. And uh, that's an amazing, that's an awesome responsibility is to have the truth. Remember years ago, and I, I'm not, I mean, I've not done many things in my life, but so I don't have these massive stories about speaking to thousands of people. So, but years ago, I spoke to the, uh, the veterinarian, a bunch of veterinarians over in Auburn. And I'm not going to get into the story how that happened, but I went. And there I am. I, and this was years ago, a little country bumpkin. And, uh, well, I wasn't little. And, uh, but I am a country bumpkin. And so I'm, I'm speaking to all these doctors, you know, and vets and room full of people. You know, one of the first things I'm able to say is there's a lot of things I don't know, but what I do know, I know the truth. I know the truth. And I'm going to share that with you. And uh, I know Walter knows this when it's one thing to sing. Like, I know people who sing, uh, like they'll sing at, at events. And it's one thing to sing about this, you know, nature and some love song, whatever. But it's another thing to sing about God's truth. There's power in singing God's truth. Something unusual about that, because it's truth. Well, you and I have the truth, and just as these guys were witnesses, we too are witnesses. But there's something here. I wanted to. I'm not saying I know. I know everything about the truth here about this little statement. But it is interesting when it comes to these, and you've got to think these are 144,000 Jews that God saves, sovereignly saves, as soon as the tribulation. It might have been right before the tribulation started, don't know when. We, we do know that after the rapture, he could have saved them the day after the rapture. I don't know. But I do know that when the tribulation starts, these 144,000 witnesses are witnesses all over the world. And we know we've read these passages where there's multitudes of people get saved. And many of the reasons why those folks are saved is because of these 144,000 witnesses. And some people say, some scholars, when you read the commentaries, that the language describes the multitude that's saved in the tribulation, or Adam says they're saved out of the tribulation, they come out of the tribulation, that there's more people saved then than there's been saved in 2,000 years of Christian history. And, and I don't know if that's true or not, but I know just as these witnesses are witnessing for Christ during the tribulation, we need to be witnesses for Christ now.
But you do notice something here. It says, uh, it is these, uh, verse 4, it is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. Now, being a virgin is a euphemism many times in the, in the Bible, obviously for being sexually pure, but being unmarried. And that's an, you know, when you're reading that and you know these are 104,000 Jewish men that God just sovereignly saves, calls to himself and calls them into the ministry to be witnesses during the tribulation, seals them, seals them with a seal so they can't be hurt, just like we're sealed by the Holy Spirit, so all those things are the same. But it says they, they have not defiled themselves with women, and for they are virgins. Now, I do know that you can imagine, just, just to say this, you, you know it to be true, as immoral and as perverted as our world is today, and it is, amen? Can you imagine when the gospel through the church and, and through the millions and millions and millions of believers that live on the face of the earth, if our theology or eschatology is correct and we are taken out of here, can you imagine what this world's going to be like morally when the church is not here? And I even mentioned that last week. I even gave you the passage in First, uh, Second Thessalonians where it talks about the restrainer being removed. And so as bad as it is now, can you imagine the moral decadence that'll be normality in the world during the seven years of tribulation? But it says these men, these men that are called, saved by Christ, transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, they will not defile themselves. They will be pure. And, and, and one reason why you're thinking... Well, what, why does he put that in there? And, and I wanted to give you a cross-reference just to make a point with you. Take your Bibles, hold your finger here at Revelation 14, and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And this is just one of those lessons we can teach. It's what the Bible says. It makes so much sense. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 about being married and being not married and the difference between being single and being... Like for these men, being single men serving the Lord Jesus in a world gone mad. And so Paul speaks to this, to the believers in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And I'm going to be brief, but I do want you to look at verse 32. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 32. Now, if you want to go and read about uh, uh, spiritual disciplines of the married life, uh, chapter 7 does that. It deals with divorce, you know, causes for divorce. I mean, biblical reasons for divorce. Uh, but he, he mentioned something about being single and being married. I'm in chapter 7, verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. Folks, if you're married, you got anxieties, right? That's, I'm not being ugly. That's just the way it is, right? Anxieties about bills, about responsibilities, about honeydew list and about whatever, you know, dogs and whatever. Anxieties. Life is anxious and and then there's one more, especially for, for husbands, because you're responsible. You read the book of Genesis. Guys, it's on your shoulder. Lock, stock, and barrel. You're going to be held accountable greater than your wife. That's incredible. So this anxious. So he says, I, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. 
But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And he doesn't say that's wrong. He's just making a statement of fact, right? I'm a married man, and a lot of my concerns have to do with being married to Diane. For instance, Diane is sick today. So I was really burdened this morning. I had to do things by myself. But you, So there was anxieties. I had to actually go get the donuts myself for all you that eat donuts. But the point would be that being married, it just makes sense. Now, now I'm just going to read, now go back to Revelation 14. These men were not married. Right? So when God called them and saved them, they were single. And they remained single and that was okay. Because God had a calling for them that was very unusual. It just makes sense to me when you read this. But I want to keep reading about these guys. It says, it is these, it is these. Can you imagine these men who are sexually pure preaching the gospel to a world gone, gone crazy? It is these, look what it says, who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. It is these who follow the Lamb everywhere He goes. Now, I want you to think about that because they're witnesses during the tribulation. Now, Christ has not come yet. It's the tribulation. But these 144,000 witnesses follow the Lamb everywhere He goes. So let me ask you a question. What are they following? The Bible. They're following God's Word and God's will. Because Christ hadn't returned yet. He hadn't set up His throne yet. But they follow Christ wherever He goes. And of course then when Christ comes back and establishes His kingdom, they continue to follow Christ wherever He goes. Now, once you go to some, take your Bibles and go, we're going to do a lot of Bible searching. Go back to John's Gospel. Go to John 10. John chapter 10. And, and this is interesting to me. They follow the Lamb everywhere He goes. And it's like they are sheep following the shepherd. John chapter 10. And look at, look at John chapter 10. And of course, we, we, you know, what's great about John 10, just to let you know, and you probably already knew this, but of all the I am statements, there's seven I am statements in John's gospel. You know, I'm the light of the world. I'm the, I'm the uh, bread of life. I'm the resurrection. Seven of them. Two of them appear in John 10. And I'm the door, you know, and uh, I'm the door of the sheep, of the sheepfold, and, uh, and then I'm the good shepherd. And so those are the two truths that Jesus says, which is incredible. When he says, I am the door, let's go back to that just for a second. Just like he sealed the 144,000 witnesses, you and I have been sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. That's what the Bible says. It says it in 1 Corinthians, it says it in Ephesians 1. We've been sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. So our salvation is secure. So in John 10, when he's talking about he's the good shepherd, he says, I'm the door of the sheep. And, and you didn't take much. I mean, I'm not a, I'm, I've never farmed sheep and dealt with a, 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 a fold or a flock of sheep, but you can watch and study. And, you know, what they would do is at night, they would bring them into a fold and they would have the walls. They'd have a little walled area. And usually they would be at least four feet high because they didn't want you know, wolves or something. Anyway, 
And but there would be one opening, and then it would be like a semicircle, and but there'd just be one opening. And supposedly what I've read, that's where the, the shepherd would lay. He would lay at the opening. The door, he was the door. And so you couldn't go out or go in except you passed through or over the shepherd. And of course, Jesus also says, a hireling, somebody you hire won't do that because they don't love the sheep like the shepherd does. They'll get up and run when danger comes. But, but the good shepherd and the shepherd who's the door of the sheep. So Christ was there. I'm thinking about for these 145 witnesses, no different than us, Christ is their security. But it does say they follow him wherever he goes. And this is where I come up with they had to be following his word until, until Christ physically appears and comes back in, in the second coming and establishes his kingdom. Before then, they just had to follow his word. And that's exactly what sheep do. If you're in chapter 10, look over here at verse... Uh, um, oh man, I lost my play. Look at verse 25. Uh, there's so many things earlier in the chapter. But Jesus answered them, I told you and, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Now, I'm making the application for these 144,000 witnesses. But I'm also going to make the application to you. I, Jesus says, I know my sheep. And my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. Now, I could go into tons of stories I've read and even in a couple of books about the voice that says a voice of a stranger they will not follow. And uh, you can do it for yourself, but you can read about, and this is true in Israel today, it's just not as many shepherds, but you could have like five flocks that, that are grazing together. So if there's five flocks, out of that thousands and thousands of sheep, you'd have five shepherds. But they would all be together. But when one shepherd got ready to head back to fold his sheep or take them back home, so to speak, he had a certain voice he would call them with. And this happens today. All of a sudden, you'll see, let's say, 150 sheep of 1,000 will all of a sudden break off and they'll start, start following the voice. And usually he'll sing after he does that. He'll call them and then he'll sing and they'll follow the voice of their shepherd. It's a great picture. This is exactly what Christ is saying about he's not only saying that about the 144,000 witnesses. This is true for me and you. He knows who his sheep are. And then he says my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Is, is that true of you? Do you hear the voice, his word? Do you, not, this isn't mystical. You, you, know, you hear his word through the spirit and you do what he says. That's what he's saying. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Now, folks, I'm, I'm just making an application. I'm not being ugly. But if you study the Bible three minutes a month, you're not hearing much of God's voice. Am I right? And if you're not hearing his voice, you're hearing somebody else's voice. And I can tell you, you're not following your shepherd. You're following, as Jesus would say, you're following the voice of strangers. 
And if you keep doing that, I would have good reason to doubt whether you're saved or not. Now let's go back to Revelation 14. A lot of prophecy, a lot of interesting things about the end days here. We keep reading. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed, saved, purchased is the word, from mankind as first fruits. Now you're thinking for God and for the Lamb. So what? First fruits what? Well, God saved them in the tribulation, sovereignly saved them. They live in for Jesus. They are first fruits. For people that need to get saved during the tribulation, this is how you're going to live if you get saved during the tribulation. You're going to live like these 144,000 witnesses. That's how the Christian, that's how you're going to live. And folks, the truth, the same is about me and you. When lost people watch us, we're supposed to be living the kind of life to let them know this is how you're going to live when you get saved. Paul was bold enough to say, mimic, we follow me as I follow Christ, but he used the word mimic. Mimic me as I mimic Christ. That people ought to see the distinctive Christian life in us now and know what the Christian life is all about now. And that's what these guys are first fruits of what it means to be saved. But that's during, that's during the tribulation. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Now, blameless is not sinless. We use this term, and you do find it in the pastoral epistles, called blameless. Really, the root word means without a stain, without a big stain, you know. So they don't have a big black ink stain on their lives. So it's not, they don't have some big noticeable, they're not living in sin. But another way of saying it is they're above reproach. Which means, what it means to be above reproach or to be blameless, it means that the world or even other believers, but the world can accuse you of something and it be true. You know, you, you know you're a drunkard or you're a woman, whatever it would be. And so, so that's what that idea. So these, these witnesses, it doesn't say they're sinless. They're still in the old nature. They still battle old new nature. So, and they're living in the midst of just chaos, but they're blameless. They're above reproach. Think about the commitment that these guys have to live for Christ in those seven years of chaos without, without a healthy local church. And anyway, let's move on. So then I saw, so there was that was an angel. Then I saw another angel. You with me? Now we're going to meet several angels. There's going to be three specific angels, angels here. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim. To those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice. Now this is the message of this, this angelic gospel preacher. Okay, He's worldwide. I don't exactly know how this happens. He's flying in mid-heavens, which is flying. He's, he's up in the air where birds are. Okay. He can be seen, I'm assuming. And he's proclaiming the gospel with a loud voice. And that's the word megaphone. That's one of my favorite words in the book of Revelation. Literally, it's megaphone. I just can't get over that. I like that. So, so and, and he says with a megaphone, here's what he says. Uh, by the way, let me, let me make a statement here. 
you hear these statements, you hear people say that until the gospel reaches the whole world, Jesus can't come back. You with me? Well, that's true for the second coming, but it's not true for the rapture, right? Because Jesus says at the end of Matthew 24, the same thing. Then the, then, then, then the battle of Armageddon. He says, when, when this happens, so this angel, is, when this happens, you're going to know the battle of Armageddon is right around the corner. But Jesus could rapture his church any minute. The gospel doesn't have to be heard all over the world for the rapture to take place. Just a little point of order. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead and turned the gospel and proclaimed to those who dwell on the earth. Earth dwellers. Uh, matter of fact, uh, the verse I gave you, uh, Philippians 3.20, for our citizenship is in heaven. The verse before that says what you're not to do is be earth dwellers when our minds are set on earthly things. That's the opposite of, of living with your citizenship in heaven. Remember this phrase, earth dwellers. It just means people that are bound to what's going on during the tribulation, to the Antichrist, to the system on this earth. They're just sold on it. So it says, so proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory. Now think about, think about the mockery you hear, whether it be on late night TV or in an article or on some web page, whatever. Just they mock the Lord Jesus they offend the Father. There is no fear of God in their eyes. There's not. And that's one of the signs of wrath that Paul mentions in the book of Romans. When there's no fear of God in their eyes, God's wrath is just hanging over them. And then he goes on to say in Romans 3, hey, they can do what they want. Let God be true and every man a liar. That's in Romans 2. But then he says in Romans Again, in Romans 2, they're storing up wrath for the day of judgment. They're not getting away with it. And here, God's fixed to pour out some judgment. Well, so he, he says, fear God and give him glory. And this is what the angel's saying. Fear God, because the hour of his judgment has come. So that means this angel's saying, hey, Jesus is fixing to come back in, in, at the battle of Armageddon. He didn't call the battle of Armageddon, but he's coming back. Hold you accountable. And, and worship him. Then he says he's the creator. I love this. The basic doctrines that God is the authority who made. Look what he says. And worship him. So these angels believe God created. There's no evolution. We, we know that. But it's just so interesting that the message of the angel, the one angel that's the witness, he says, fear God, and he's the one that created it. So it says, worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And he could have also said, which he's judged and are now bitter, but he doesn't. Another, you with me? Another angel. A second one. Followed, saying. So you have the gospel angel. Then you, so you have another angel. A second followed the first. Saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Now, Babylon there could be the spirit of Babylon, not just the city. We know that 
Babylon, as in what happened at the Tower of Babel, is where all false doctrine comes from. We'll read that later in the book of Revelation. Every false belief, every act of perversion, everything that people do that's in darkness, all of those, and remember, the biblical worldview, that's what the Old Testament, all of it goes back to the Tower of Babel. And because they rebelled to the Tower of Babel, I'll say it again, you know, God, God rejected the nations. And then he married Israel, or he called Abraham. And he said, I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to be your God, and your, your family is going to be my people. We're going to marry each other, and I'm going to make a covenant. So he disengaged, divorced, really, kind of the terminology. He divorced the world and married Abraham and Israel. So these, the, the world's been in darkness since then, since the Tower of Babel. And so all these false beliefs and running on, immorality is just what the spirit of Babylon teaches. Babylon the Great, who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. So fallen, fallen. So it's fixing, this is fixing to come to an end. Whether it be the, some people believe it's, there's a literal, they're going to re, rebuild the city of Babylon or there's another city, maybe Rome, that's, that's the new Babylon. We're not going to get into that right now. But, but that it's going to, all that immorality, all that power, all that false doctrine, it's going to come to a crashing stop, stop when Christ returns. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone, so here's a great, well, look what's in this. So you, have, so you have the gospel, you have the system of belief, Babylon, okay, and then it says, then you're going to have the judgment, the mark of the beast. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, again, megaphone, if anyone worship, this is the angel flying in heaven now, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, there's no hope. That's what that means. It's a pretty sobering thing to think this, but the moment you take the mark, you're a resident of hell and nothing can be done to save you. You can't change your mind, though you might change your mind, you still can't get saved. It's one of the most, it's one of the saddest things in the Bible. I, um, I don't, I have my theories about why it's that way. Um, but it's just sobering. People who choose the mark of the beast are going to hell. So he says, so a mark on their forehead, you know, the mark of the beast back in chapter 13, you know, the number of his name, 666, the, mark, the number of a man. And, and uh, you know, most people think it's got to be something with the RFID chips, you know, the radio frequency thing. And, and there's so much technology, you and I both know they could do it today. I mean, it's just amazing what they can do with technology. And, and I believe that, you know, I, I always talk about the first time I heard a message on prophecy in depth at a conference, I was youth, and, and no kidding, I thought Jesus, and this was, you know, I'm 61, this was when I was 16. I mean, I thought Jesus was coming back then. I believed it then, and, and the, the signs of the times were everywhere. There's a song called that, wherever Walter is. Signs of the times are... Yeah, y'all won't sing it, but you know what I'm talking about. And there's a... Anyway, so 
so I, I really believed it, and I still believe it. But think of the, and they, even the technology then, you're thinking, oh, man. I can remember, I'm chasing rabbits, and I'm sorry for that, but when they came out with the bar graph on the food, that's how, that, that was technology back in my day, right? When you could scan, they didn't have to type in the amount and do that little ching on the little, they would scan it and say, beep, beep. Don't you like that? Beep. So you're thinking, and really you're thinking, it's incredible technology. Think about what we're doing today. And we know that supposedly all this stuff doubles in every five or so years. Just incredible. So the mark on his forehead or on his hand. He also will drink the wine of God's wrath. This is what uh, Robbie read in Isaiah 63. That was describing that's one of 500 passages in the Bible that describe the second coming of Christ. Okay? One of 500 that talks about the wrath of God coming on this earth. So it says, He who takes my will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength in the cup of his anger. So then he's going to be tormented with this. The cup of his anger poured full strength. Just, just to let you know, I mean, wine in Bible days would be cut with water. Right, it would be mixed, and you can study the different words, yayin and glucose, all these words for wine. There's several different words. All of them would be cut with water. You would cut you you almost it was like a paste, and you'd cut it with water. And but if you didn't use enough water, it was very alcoholic, or, or was not like today. But and so if you didn't cut it enough, you would, you was considered a barbarian. So. So what? So the full strength of God is not going to be what His judgment's not going to be watered down. Let me just say that's what the text is saying. It's not going to be watered down. The whole, all of it that man deserves, which we deserve, except we know Christ. Praise the Lord. Amen. I deserve every bit of it. But this is salvation, and which is Robbie prayed. This is why we glorify the Lord because that wrath has been removed because we know Christ. Isn't that amazing to you? So. A mark on the foot says he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur. Brimstone, sulfur, brimstone. Same stuff that's in Sodom and Gomorrah. Look it up, look it up. They, they dig it up even today and can set it on fire. Our archaeologist took us on thing. We didn't get to go do it, but he told us about it. You know, that's the first time I heard about it. You can dig up sulfur balls in, in, down by the Dead Sea, and you can ignite them, and they'll burn hotter than anything that man can make now. It's just incredible. Why is that? Well, because God rained sulfur down on Sodom and Gomorrah's wine, you know. So, tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest describing hell. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image. And whoever receives the mark of its name. Here's a call for endurance. One of the most important words in the Bible about Christianity. 
How do you know you're saved for eternity? How do you know? The Bible says everybody who's born again will endure. Endure. What that means is you will remain faithful to Christ. Not perfect. Not holier than that. But you will never walk away. You will endure to the end. Look what it says. He says, here's a call for the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Now we're still talking about during tribulation. Well, if it's true for the tribulation, it's true for us. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Now, folks, this is a great verse. I want you to think about what the text is saying. You see the judgment of unbelievers. You see this call for endurance to keep the commands of God in faith and obedience to Jesus Christ. Then another voice says from heaven, a beatitude, a blessed. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Now he's talking about tribulation states. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they will rest from their labors for their deeds will follow them. Now, it's true about believers, all believers, but it's especially true for tribulation saints. That's primarily who he's talking about. You know, and you see there, what's interesting, first part of the verse says, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, uh, again, this is God's word coming from heaven. And that, that appears six or seven times throughout the book of Revelation where John, he hears a voice from heaven. And then he writes it down. In, incredible way that John's getting this, this revelation. Well, I've got two minutes, but I do want to read the text. It's just sobering. Then I looked and behold, a white cloud. And remember, Jesus went up on a cloud we're going to meet him in the air on a cloud, but when he comes, he's coming in clouds, which is which in the Old Testament was was the glory of his presence. You know, like the Shekinah glory, like the pillar of the cloud by day, like the cloud that showed up at the temple at the over the Holy of Holies. This is God's presence. So Jesus is coming, and all the presence of God Almighty is with him. Right. Besides, it doesn't mention here, besides the army that comes with him, that's believers that have been glorified. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a goat by, that you see, that son of man is first found in the book of Daniel. The son of man with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And most of you know what a sickle looks like. Some are kind of long, some are kind of short but they're known by their razor blade sharp, that curved hook blade. And they'll go through the... You know what I'm talking about. I don't have to describe it. But so, he's, so in the Revelation, John says, Then I looked, and behold, a white horse, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, 
Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. By the way, that word fully ripe is a little bit more than it's a perfect time to pick. If you've ever had a tomato or some fruit sit up on your shelf, or we have a little fruit thing, fruit thing that holds our fruit in the dining room, and sometimes some of them, a peach or something, will sit there a little too long, and, and it'll get kind of gross. Like some of it will start seeping out. That's the word here. It is overripe. It is literally, it's, it's pregnant for judgment. It's pregnant for judgment. Remember Robbie read about the bloodshed. We'll keep reading. It's fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. This is Jesus. This is the second coming. We're going to read more about it later on. Then another angel came out of the temple and coming out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar. The angel who has authority over the fire and, and call with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle. Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth. So you have, you know, you have seeds and plants and now you have plums, grapes, Okay. Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth. For its grapes are ripe. This is part of the grapes of wrath. If you, the term grapes of wrath is found in the Old, Old Testament too. So the angel swung his sickle and across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. This is a horrific judgment. So, all these people are, are, are cut down with a sickle. And symbolically, they're, they're thrown into a wine press, symbolically. Because you study the Battle of Armageddon, you know what I'm talking about. The wine press of God's wrath, that's, that's where you don't want to be, am I correct? The wine press of God's wrath. And think about just the symbolism there of, of God's judgment just, if you don't mind me using a, a you know, a Elmore County, stomping all over in judgment, just crushing all the rebels. Look what it says in the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city. So all this bloodshed, it's going to be over near Basra. Robbie read about it. Edom. But you know where it's not going to go into? Jerusalem. God's going to protect the city of Jerusalem. But there's going to be absolute chaos and bloodshed. All Because, you know, these nations are coming against Israel. I mean, we ain't got to that. But these nations. So, and, and so, and the wine press was trodden outside the city. And blood flowed from the wine press. Now, look what it says. As high as a horse's bridle for 200 miles or 1,600 stadia. Now, we've got to stop there.
massive judgment. Just absolute massive judgment. And if you know anything about the tribulation, you know that part of this is we're coming with him. He's on the clouds. Besides him, there's the armies of heaven, all the angels. But the battle is his. And here is the picture of a sickle. Now, Jesus isn't literally going to raise a sickle that's the size of the earth and, and just mow everybody down. But what he is going to do is speak his word. And, and sinners will be obliterated. And in addition to that, there's going to be a battle that's been going on called the, the Battle of Armageddon as the nations are trying to come against Israel. It's going to be a mess. But let me just finish with this, because sometimes you almost think it's unreal. And I'm not going to go into the valley of Megiddo, all that, but he, when you say the, the blood, it's what it says. The blood flowed as high as. Now, it is not saying that for 200 miles, blood's going to be four and a half feet tall. That's not what it's saying. But it is saying, that in the course of a 200-mile stretch, that there will be times where blood is going to be splattered that high. That's what the reference is, okay? Because, you know, there's, there's horses involved. We, we come on horse. So that's part of the scene. But you just need to know, and I just need to know and be remembered, that this is God rendering His judgment. Folks, Robbie prayed about it at the first and I couldn't say any better. This is why we love the Lord Jesus Christ. I deserve every bit of this. And so do you. But we've been saved by the life and death of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. And I want to serve Him because of that. Don't you? Let's stand for prayer. Let's pray together. Thank you so much for being here, folks. Lord, we, it really sets us aside of ourselves when we try to, I guess, apply or internalize the description of, of your great wrath. Father, this wrath is, is justified. And it's wrath poured out on a world that has rejected the Son of God and mocked Him. It's persecuted His church. It's rejected His truth. And your wrath's going to come. And Father, as much as we are struggled and burdened over that wrath, that even, maybe even today is, is in its own way being poured out little by little. All of us in here know that we're deserving of your wrath. But Lord, because of what Christ has done, becoming a man, the Son of Man, who absolutely obeyed every demand of holiness, and then 
was a substitute for sinners on a cross. Lord Jesus, thank you for salvation. Thank you for the promise of heaven. Father, thank you for the honor that every one of us has to serve you in this world now. Now, As we leave this place, God, we go out into a wicked world. We're aliens and strangers. And so I pray that we'll be the salt and the light. and That we'll share the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus. Father, help us to brag about you and brag about your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you all. See you.